0: Since 2009, SharesPost has been a leader in the secondary market for private company shares. With its network of 44,000 accredited investors and 150,000 members, SharesPost has transacted in more than 190 private companies. Whether you're an investor or a shareholder looking for liquidity, SharesPost has a solution for you. Visit us at SharesPost.com.
1: Coming up on equity, Lyft raises more money from a self-driving partner. Theranos gets charged with fraud, and President Trump steps in to kill what would have been the biggest tech acquisition ever. Welcome to Equity. I'm TechCrunch's Katie Roof, joined by my colleague, Matthew Lindley. Hello. Alex is off today, but our special guest today is Naveen Chada, who's a managing director at Mayfield.
2: Proud to be here. And really also, looking forward to the conversation. <laughs> <laughs>
1: You're also an early investor in Lyft, so it was, it was pertinent because we had news about Lyft this week. I mean, although, let's face it, there's always news about Lyft or Uber. Yeah. but um, <laughs>
2: We have been extremely lucky to have partnered with Lyft in 2011. It's been a long journey to see them grow.
1: Early days, for sure. So was that when they were Zimride?
2: Yes, they were Zimride, and a couple of years later, they ended up becoming Lyft.
1: And so when you first found them, I mean, how how did that come about?
2: Uh, We were looking at the whole um, self-driving space and the ride-sharing space. And we were looking at a thesis on how the sharing economy is going to take over things. I just led an investment earlier that year in a company called Poshmark, which is in the used fashion place, where today we have 3 million sellers selling things out of their closets, which are both new and old and we had seen the success of Airbnb. So our feeling was, the same thing is gonna happen in transportation. There's so much idle capacity. So we had a prepared mind, we just loved the team, and we say, these guys want to disrupt transportation to change the way people work, live, and play. Let's partner with them. Was that, then,
0: around, uh, was, was that around the time that Lift Line was in development as well? Uh, no, or? not at all. Okay. Basically it was
2: carpooling, all, right, yeah. They carpooling, so, right? They were carpooling, yeah. selling so to corporations. Mm-hmm. And selling to universities to provide a platform for long distance ride share or commuting, if you will.
0: Yeah, I just I just remember like I can't remember what year that was, but they did uh they they brought a bunch of people in to talk about Lyft line, and then before they formally announced it, like Uber decided to sneak in that they were building like a carpooling <laughs> service, like yeah. Uber Pool, and it was like wasn't even ready. I don't think. Yeah, that was a carpool. few years
2: later when yeah. they pivoted into Lyft, that they knew the carpooling thing could be Lyft line. But you're absolutely right, like Uber came to market earlier than them, but it was easy for us to execute because that's our roots.
1: Yeah, it started out as a carpool service. But so fast forward to today, um, I mean, you know, you mentioned that you're interested in the self-driving car space. And now they're pretty serious about it because they're teaming up with Magna, which is an automotive supplier. And uh, they're going to help build and build these cars. And they're investing $200 million. They're taking an equity stake in Lyft. Not that Lyft needs more money. I mean, right? Like they, they've been raising a lot, although they've been burning a lot, too. Uh, but so, I mean, what do you think this says about um, their self-driving car Future. I mean, how far off are they from these self-driving cars, and uh, how are they going to stand out with all the competition?
0: Well, I think they have a building, right?
2: Yeah, they have a big building. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's, a also, right? like, yes. that's a start, That's a start. But hey, buildings are only worth so much, right? They're a good way to spend money.
0: I think isn't it, isn't Zynga's building like its biggest asset, though, or something like that? Yeah. <laughs> well, yes. Anyways, <laughs> back to left. Back to left. <laughs> no, 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 uh, no
2: comments. <laughs> no comments. No comments, right? Like, so let's get to the reality, right? Like self-driving is going to happen it's a question of when it's not a question of if and if you look at for ride sharing to be inherently profitable self-driving has to happen and autonomous has to happen so lyft is a very partner-centric company our belief is let's grow the ecosystem we don't plan to go build a vertically integrated car what we want to do is what are we good at We are good at being a leading and the fastest growing consumer platform in the US for transportation as a service. Then we look around and say, hey, what's our core competency? Our core competencies are in the software layer as it relates to robotics, mapping, localization, perception, motion planning, and motion control. But we're not coming from a hardware background. We don't know anything about LIDARs. We don't know anything about radars, cameras. We have never assembled a car, and the big tier one OEMs, the big car companies, want to buy from people like Magna. So in order to create a win-win, what we wanted to do is, how do we partner with somebody who is the Intel and who is going to be the Microsoft or Android of this ecosystem? So we want to focus on our self-driving capabilities, partner with somebody who knows how to take this to market and can provide the components, and together, we open this up to every car company in the world. Now, there's one thing which we would do. We're not building a car, but Magna and our joint effort will allow us to get self-driving kits that we can retrofit on existing cars to be part of the lift fleet. But if a consumer comes to lift, it's not just going to be retrofit lift cars. Through the Magna ecosystem, it could be a BMW, it could be a Mercedes, it could be a Toyota. We want to give choice to consumers. But why?
0: Why would you? If I'm a consumer and I'm just going to have like a car drive me around, why the hell would I pay for a BMW? Like, I mean, it's just like that's basically like like uh, a Prada bag instead of a coach bag, right? Like, Which th- some
1: people think that there's a difference. Yeah, but- I know, yeah, but yeah.
0: We, we're talking about instead of like between $200 and $800, it's, you know, like $1,000 versus $85,000. I feel like that's a slightly bigger gap. So right? I think you, so. Need
2: to, you need to segment the market. So basically, if you look at it, first of all, if every car company has its own ride-sharing app, the wait times, this is a density-driven game, could be 20, 30 minutes. If you're on the Lyft network with two to three-minute wait times, If you want to get somewhere faster, and it gives you a choice, you accomplish your goal. At the same time, during the week, you're okay going in a small car, which you don't own. On the weekend, you're going to Tahoe. You need a bigger car with your family. (laughs) And then once in a while, you need to impress people. On a Friday night, then you want to get a limo. So essentially... (laughs) It depends so if you're picking upon... up
1: a date, you get the limo. Um, <laughs> the limo? No, but... Come on, like
0: Tesla Roadster, man. <laughs> right.
1: Yeah, I don't know. So but I you need a nicer car for your date, h- I guess. How do
2: you give consumers complete flexibility? There was a notion of leasing cars, and now it is using transportation as a service. You choose what fits your need at that time of the day and what mood you're in.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess if you if you can get a different car every time you ride, that that's... Depending upon your needs. Mm-hmm. That's the beauty of I mean, not you, owning anything. Um, if, I mean, if
0: you if you want to be a platform, though, like, I mean, I remember, like, uh, uh, this must have been eons ago, there was some talk about Didi and Lyft partnering up. And then I like, you know, when you go to China, you still can't open the Lyft app. Right. So I, it's clear, like, something didn't exactly play out there as planned. And, yeah, Didi's not leaving China anytime soon. And Grab doesn't seem to be leaving Southeast Asia anytime soon. But there are, like. A lot of potential platforms out there, right? So if you're trying to make the platform play, Uber is going to be kind of like a closed ecosystem, right? They're going to have their own cars, and if you are trying to make like a like a generalized platform play, I mean, you ended up with like Apple and Google, right? So there's like so you have your closed ecosystem and your one open ecosystem, right? So like you have Uber, which is your closed ecosystem, and then you have like three, which are all considerably large. I'd imagine DD is the biggest. Right. Mm -hmm. Then Mm -hmm. like just like it seems to me that there's like there's room for like one open platform and one closed platform. Yeah.
2: And our feeling is let's build an open platform. As you have seen, we partnered with General Motors first. Then we added Ford. Now we have Waymo. Then we have Waymo. uh, We have JLR. We have Newtonomy. We have Drive.ai. We have the Delphi guys. And now we have Magna. We want to be the operating system for the self-driving world. Yeah, but there can only be one, really, right? An and open we one. Think, we think like that's going to be us. That's the <laughs> <laughs> so you think <laughs> you're going to ambassador. overtake Uber and, TV, <laughs> and you're
1: going to be the number one pl- player in um, the space? As
2: the open network, right? We are not building a vertically integrated car, right? What I'm saying is any work we do with Magna is going to be open to every car manufacturer in the world.
0: Do you do you see a, a future where like this is, this kind of hardware is like open source? Because Facebook has open compute, right? And like, I, I feel like if you if you wanted to create like a truly open platform, Androids Androids open source, Facebook's open Facebook's open compute is open source. A lot of this stuff is open source, and it seems like there's like a There's a lot of movement towards actual, like, real hardware becoming. I mean, even Hyperloop, right? (laughs) Hyperloop is technically open-sourced, right? You're
2: preaching to the choir, right? I think you're going to be hearing in the next few years a lot of these strategic discussions are happening that to democratize access to this technology, whether it's software or the designs of this hardware, either through us or through other people, will be open-sourced or the reference designs will be out there. Because at the end of the day, what's in the aim of every company? When Windows came out or when Android came out, it created a de facto standard, but that's what grew the market. Fragmentation is bad. When you have open standards, magic can happen because each person in the ecosystem can take commodity components and differentiate itself, right? And for example... It's like
0: Oculus, right? Take phone parts and make a VR headset.
2: Yeah, they could, but let's look at car companies, right? Like they don't make their own mirrors. They don't make their own windows. They don't make their own, uh, the people like Conti, Bosch, and Magna do that stuff for them. So that's what the opportunity here is. Let people decide what they are the best in the world of and let them partner the same way the computing ecosystem developed. IBM used to be vertically integrated, and you saw what happened with the Wintel market, with Intel building the chips, Microsoft building the OS, the whole market shifted. And the value accreted into the component people. But in this case, our belief is there'll be many Apples and Samsungs which end up providing excellent interfaces and excellent experiences to their customers. But today, it's a very confusing space, it's very early, all of us can draw analogs, it's unclear who the clear winner is? Our bet at Lyft is be an open company which is partnering with best of breed suppliers and try to create a win-win and don't be a vertically integrated company. That's why Google in, uh, invested in us. That's why David Loy is on the board. We want to be partnering with Waymo. We want to GM as an investor, right? Jaguar is an investor. We want to be the most partner-centric company on this planet this ecosystem. Well, I mean,
0: that was the case with Android and then pic- the Pixel came out, right? So they like, they technically have their own like vertical, like their own vertical like uh, product out there, right? Yeah. It's like, we're gonna own like, I mean, yes, like we'll be an open ecosystem, but we're gonna have a little slice of just ours and we'll
2: see but how it's it goes. But it's a small and- portion, right? And to test, you always need that to test your features and to test what's happening and, Lyft for its own network of self-driving cars and its own fleet, yes, we do plan to take the Magna technology and retrofit it into existing cars, right? So we want to benefit from this joint work we are doing with Magna and bring it to the benefits of the Lyft's network too. And the world will be hybrid. Yes, some cars might come out of us by retrofitting, but the world needs choice. We cannot produce. Any one of these companies can't produce. 250 million cars to replace all the cars in the US. They just can't.
1: (laughs) And so, right now, actually, Lyft also this week announced that they passed a billion in revenue for last year, which is a lot, but it's still way below, you know, the over seven billion that that Uber had um, in the same time frame. But it's growing much faster than Uber. Uh, it says revenue grew one hundred and sixty eight percent year over year, so that's like more than double, significantly more than doubling. Um, well, it was year over year for the fourth quarter. So, uh, at the last quarter of last year, it had a pretty fast pace. Um, Uber's also seeing fast growth, but at like more like sixty one percent, which sometimes happens. Sometimes you know the bigger you are, the harder it is to keep growing. in, in fairness to Uber, but uh, what does that mean for Uber in its home territory, the U.S.? I mean, obviously Uber is a much bigger player internationally, but here in the U.S. and major cities, Lyft is actually giving Uber a run for its money. Do you think that trend will continue?
2: Uh, I'm biased. I think the trend is going to continue. And the proof is in the numbers, right? You look at our market share today, it's in the low 30s. Go back two years, it was half of that. Go back three years, it was one third of that. So in three years, we have tripled our market share from a market leader where the gap today is only two is to one. And if you look at the growth in North America that happened last year, Most of it went to Lyft. So if you look at the data from Slice, you look at the data from all these data sources, we are doing something right, which is resonating with drivers. It's resonating with the riders. And we continue to be on this network effect business to keep growing our market share. And then there are many tier one cities where we were there for a long time. We're neck to neck. And the reason our market share is in the low 30s We only entered many new markets in hundreds just last year. We have barely scratched the surface. We just launched in Toronto. We're thinking of Ottawa, right, in the North American market. So we have barely scratched the surface. And our belief is, yes, Uber has like big numbers, but if you look at the US market, the gap is closing. And once things start going right for you, the flywheel effect makes it unstoppable. And there was a time three years back, I remember, people had written us off. What we have proven is, if you focus on long-term value, if you focus on serving your customers well, do a few things and do them well and love your customers and love your drivers, magic can happen. And it is going to be a duopoly. This is not going to be one company which has 90% market share and another has 10%.
0: It has to be a duopoly because if... Uber had a monopoly it'd be an antitrust issue so they need they <laughs> technically need technically it has yeah. to be a monopoly yeah. so technically they need, they need, but they could like, have kept us at yeah. 10% well, well, right right I mean, they like, tried their best but they could not I mean, like, you know, Google needs Bing to exist, right? And Yahoo search to a certain extent,
2: right? So Uber does kind of Yeah, need but Lyft they're to happy with ninety ten. Here we are talking about two is to one difference and it's going in the other direction.
1: Yeah, and also Uber obviously had a lot of negativity last year. I know that in San Francisco, sometimes it's, it's even embarrassing to say you're calling an Uber because people expect you to take Lyft. I personally boycotted it but the, for a while, but the new CEO seems like a nice guy. But I think that uh, a lot of people still feel like Morally obligated to take Lyft because of some of the negativity around Uber, and so I wonder if that trend will continue or if if Uber will win back the trust of some of its customers. But speaking of bad company cultures, there's a, <laughs> really uh, it would be funny except uh, they were uh, uh, dealing with health and exploiting human health. But so Theranos, uh, for those of you who uh, have been living under a rock, was this highly valued blood testing company and, um, Turns out they defrauded investors. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, the it's reason really we're laughing funny, is because but... it's so bad. I mean, they misled investors, believing they had like a hundred million uh, in revenue, and when they had a hundred thousand. I mean, there's a slight difference. But also, that's kind of embarrassing if you fell if you fell for it. But I mean, I don't know exactly to the extent. Obviously, they went to great lengths to deceive uh, their investors and and various people into thinking that they had partnerships and other things that. Uh, and that their uh, technology and research was was already developed when it really wasn't there, and so now they're in trouble with the SEC, but not enough trouble, according to a lot of people, because um, they're you know they're, they've been dealt with a small fine, and, and they can't work at like major companies for a while, but. Elizabeth Holmes is not going to jail and neither is her business partner. So um, some people are pretty mad about that. I mean, and also, you you know, I think this it's not just about this company, but the precedent it sets is that you could (laughs) defraud to this extent and have minimal repercussions. Obviously, no one's about to hire Elizabeth Holmes. But, um, you know, this is not definitely not anyone's choice scenario, but she's not behind bars for pretty wide scale yeah. fraud I mean, so well
0: not a great uh, not a great great analogy but if you look at the same thing happened with Zenefits, right they sort of like skirted a bunch of regulations and what happened well, they got slapped with like small fines periodically across certain states right so it's like I mean I like it, it's hard to un- I don't follow securities law very closely, right? But it's, it's, it's semi-hard to understand how you get from, uh, what was it, like raising more than $700 million through, uh, what is it, quote, elaborate years-long fraud in which they exaggerated or made false statements about the company's technology, business, and financial performance. According to Connie Loy's, this article on TechCrunch.com. Uh, and you end up with a $500,000 penalty. Sorry, we're laughing because it's really, really, really bad. And it's like hard to like actually like, Digest it's mind-boggling. Entirely.
2: It's mind-boggling to happen in Silicon Valley.
1: and it, But it was uncovered by a reporter. I mean, people love to knock the press, but the press... Brought this to light. I mean, it was John Kerryu at the Wall Street Journal who uncovered that there was there was something going on here that a lot of things didn't pass the smell test or the blood test, and um, he got a lot of pushback at first because VCs in Silicon Valley they love to get mad at the antagonistic press or whatever it is, and then and, and um, at first people didn't like that they were critical of of you know Elizabeth who had been um, kind of seen as like a golden girl or you know really. You know, a lot of people, she got a lot of positive coverage. Yeah, yeah. She, she had a lot of, I mean, you know, I mean, people trusted that that um, she and her team were telling the truth. Uh, and their first instinct was that the reporter was wrong. But it turns out the reporter was right and helped uncover this. You know, I just think that it, it goes to show that there is a need for this kind of reporting. Uh, there could be other frauds out there most likely not quite to this extent because it's hard to even imagine things getting to this extent but it does make you wonder what other companies are lying and tricking people the media their investors and other people into thinking that they're doing really well and i'm obviously there are probably many that get away with that to a certain degree although this to to be a company that's worth over a billion dollars or on paper and really uh not have have great proprietary product at all. Uh, that's that's what's really shocking about all of this. I mean, is this
0: the like? Is this how long? How long ago was there something this bad? Like Enron? I don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I
2: I think like um, having been in business as a firm since 1969, uh, our strong belief is right. Like building companies is all about people, right? Because people make products. Products don't make people, and there's some basic traits you need to be able to identify at a series A investment in a company, that's where we focus. Uh, The first thing is, can you trust them? You can only trust them if they have integrity and high honesty and very high degree of self-awareness and EQ. How do you determine that? Uh, I think it's an art, it's not a science. You have to do work on them, you have to spend time with them and use your sixth sense. And we still go wrong, right? Like basically, but if you spend enough time, not like 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, and put a term sheet, th- this is a quality business, right? Like it's not a quantity business.
0: Yeah, I mean, I was—I feel like I was here, like when you guys are coming to a consensus, it's the, you you hope you guys are disagreeing, right? In the room when you're deciding whether or not to make an investment. And if everyone's agreeing, you're just like, uh, something
2: is wrong here. Yeah. <laughs> And I think our lens always has been people, people, people. Those are the three most important things. But one of the things is when you enter markets like what Theranos is doing, it's a very, very hard market. For generalist VCs to understand the technology of what they are working on and the science is very, very hard. And one of the things when Mayfield looks at those areas is the question around the table is what do we know about it? Anybody can fool us. And we are a fiduciary where we have to manage somebody else's money. So are we bringing in world-class experts who are professors, who have worked at big companies to come in and help us with due diligence? There were some other things which were wrong in this company. Uh, There was an odd structure on voting control. Whenever I see that stuff as a VC, having been doing it for 14 years and Mayfield for 49 years, there's a red flag. Yes, there are many examples where it has worked, at like Facebook and Google, but I can tell you there are thousands of places where that fear and greed has led to nothing. There was another thing, in these kinds of companies, why are they overcapitalizing themselves? Startups don't die of starvation, they die of indigestion. Focus is everything. So somebody needs to have been questioning them, why are you raising so much money? Why is the valuation so high? Because you're gonna spend it, you haven't even proven anything. So when that pressure comes, some humans just break down, they cross the line. And I think some of this stuff, I don't know her, might have happened here. So my lesson always has been, invest in people, spend time with them, do a lot of diligence, try to suss out on what's really driving them because building businesses is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And just figure out what is really driving them. If they're in it for a quick buck, all this stuff will happen.
0: Oh, I, mean, I mean, also, I mean, to be fair, Elizabeth Holmes couldn't point at the space car and say, this is why you need to invest in me, because I'm sending a Tesla Roadster careening into an asteroid. Right? <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I mean,
1: apparently she was very charismatic and charming. And, and, and to clarify, it wasn't just over a billion dollars, it was... Nine billion dollars at yep. one point. So this is not this is, right? yeah the valuation, yeah. Uh, and so this was um, you know no small scale of, of fraud here, and and they, it's not like these were no name investors either. I mean it was DFJ, which is Draper Fisher Jurvetson, or you know whatever they want to call themselves investor, now, of um, crashing <laughs> a roadster into uh, an asteroid. <laughs> but um, and and then they had you know Henry Kissinger and other former Secretary of States involved. Uh, they had you know they had some really big name people here who. Uh, who trusted that uh, she was doing what she said she was going to do and that her business partner, I believe his name is Sonny Balwani, yep. was also doing what he said he was going to do. Um, We're and so, all humans,
2: we hey, make mistakes. But
1: this is not just a human thing. <laughs> I mean, you know, it just, it, it just, it's, it's so sad because she was this, you know, she had been at Stanford and, you know, seemed like this bright person with a promising future. What would inspire her and her team to take this risk? This this ridiculous risk, um, when really I mean they could have done quite well, maybe raising less money and setting the bar a bit lower.
2: I think it's the psychology, right? Like Silicon Valley, there's so much peer pressure, and you're driven by fear and greed that I just can't fail, and I want to get big faster because most people don't feel they're running a marathon. They're running a sprint. And what ends up happening is one small lie or one thing you do leads to the other, the other, the other, and you can just keep growing. And I don't think this is 100% of the market. It's not even 99% of the market. So just one incident, we shouldn't say everybody is doing it. This is just an odd personality. It happens, right? It happens. There are companies like Enron. There have been companies in India. People do all kinds of things and it's always fear. And once they have the money, it's great.
1: But let's say John at the Wall Street Journal, John Cario from the Wall Street Journal hadn't reported this story. How far away, like, how how out of control would this have gotten? Because it clearly got way out of control before uh, anything happened here. I mean, like, what would it take if reporters don't identify these stories? What would it have taken to uncover this massive fraud?
2: I think like you guys do a phenomenal job by doing the stuff you guys do of detecting things early. One day when these tests were going to Walmart or any other things, people would discover. But the catastrophic thing could have been if prescriptions were given to people and it led to deaths, that's what got circumvented, if you will. So it's great. The work got done, but we are extremely lucky that this didn't get into humans it could have caused even more damage beyond the financial fraud, if you will. Like a false negative is way worse than a false positive. Exactly, exactly.
1: That's true, I mean, because obviously with it being a a blood testing business, you're really, you're dealing with lives. It's a life or death matter matter here. And and therapeutics is
2: that, like one should, that's why it takes time, right? Like to build a new drug, to build a new uh, diagnostic. It's like 10, 15 years. So let's not take shortcuts. Let's do it right, it's a marathon.
1: And so um you know more SEC and and, um uh, other news here we had uh, It's over. <laughs> it's finally
0: over. Well actually it was kind of short lived well, So
1: seems like it. <laughs> so
0: so uh this is my favorite story of the year because it is such a, it is such a big deal but at the same time it is such and such like a like a in terms of mind share the like the best niche drama ever. Um which is the largest deal in tech, is not happening. Uh, Broadcom's, like, the Trump administration blocked Broadcom's proposal to a hostile takeover of Qualcomm, and, the like, the mechanics of this are amazing because what happened was uh, two days before the shareholder meeting was scheduled to start, they delayed the shareholder, which is, so they were... Essentially, what was going to happen is they were going to try and vote for a hostile takeover of the board for for Qualcomm at the shareholder meeting earlier this month. Two days before that happened, uh, they, it came out that there was going to be an investigation by the CFIUS, uh, which CIFIUS? is CFIUS, yeah, 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 um, yeah foreign investment yeah, committee, foreign investment uh, to see like what was going to happen, because it's a foreign company that's basically trying to buy an, an American company, even though Broadcom said it was going to move its offices to the United States. Uh, then so that so the shareholder meeting got pushed back by 30 days, and then uh, lo and behold, shortly after that, the Trump Trump administration blocks this deal. Qualcomm's like, awesome, let's bump our shareholder meeting up, and now it's happening before Broadcom has a chance to actually move their offices to the United States. And so finally, finally Broadcom dropped it today and they're just like, okay, like we can't get this done, which is ridiculous because Hock Tan is known as like one of the most aggressive deal makers in the he is. industry and he like, I get like the most ridiculous series of events actually came together for this to actually fall apart. So, um, so like consolidation of the semiconductor industry is currently on hold for the time being, but at the same time, it's just like, it's, it's probably like the weirdest, like most awesome tech deal to completely fall in its face.
1: Remember when some bankers thought Trump would be good for M&A? Just, (laughs) just saying, just saying, I mean, so supposedly Trump, you know, was going to be good for business and I mean, or like, well, people thought that because he ran under the Republican ticket. Some people thought that. I, I personally don't know that you can judge Trump by by his political party, but um, <laughs> that's a separate issue. But regardless, um, some people thought he would be, you know, anti-regulation and government interference with business. And, and uh, this was not the kind of thing that certain people on Wall Street expected. Although before the election, he did say something about getting involved with AT&T Time Warner. So, mm-hmm. uh, well, I mean, also- what do you think about the president getting in the way of a big acquisition?
0: Well, I mean, I think also just really fast, uh, the the wording and the official statement was that, uh, like, other mergers and acquisitions that scale also would be
2: blocked, if I'm remembering this correctly. So- yeah, so... So I think there are two sides, right, like I could end up taking. So first of all, right, like being a VC and having done this for a while, right, this is a little disturbing. When the U.S. president is stepping in, it's reminding me of the EU, right, like basically where if things get too, if things get too big, right, like don't allow them to get big. So if this is being stopped, I don't know what's going to happen with Facebook, Microsoft, Amazon, what's next, right, like basically – Then the second thing is where does this lead to, global trade, right? What was played in this one, at least with what was written and what was said is, um, it's America first. 5G is an important technology that Qualcomm is creating. The only other company in the world is a Chinese company which has IP in there, Huawei. So if Hawk, who's known for like aggressive deal making, he's also driven like with a PE mentality of cutting costs. So is he going to shut down these efforts and move it to China or Singapore or Taiwan? There was fear, if you will. And then there were other economic arguments that, hey, you're undervaluing a company because you don't know what the value of five-generation technology will be. And with the NXP deal, you're not valuing it. Uh, So I think it's a little bit surprising and worrisome for the venture industry. It's good as a VC on one end, if such mega deals are being stopped, it creates opportunity for startups to be the ones which are getting acquired. When two companies combine, they'll cut out cost and they will have a skew of parts that they can compete with anybody. And then for a new startup to go win in the semi-ecosystem, it's hard to get the sockets. So the bad side or the negative side of the story is government intervening, the good side for startups and VCs wow, if big deals are gonna get stopped, that means small deals will happen. <laughs> and it'll allow us to take small boxes of money and make them bigger. So I think this is a double-edged sword. At least I wouldn't have expected that the president and the government would have interfered in this stuff. I felt that based on merit, hopefully this deal won't see the light on, or like won't see the other side of the tunnel. But then the way it was going, it could have gone either way, mm-hmm. if you will. So it's surprising, but I hope with the global trade issues that are happening and what has happened in EU, that doesn't happen in our country, right? This is a company, country where you focus on innovation, the best people win, and you have to stay to, stay away from these politics.
1: All right. Well, thanks for tuning in. Come back next week.
0: All right, everyone, we want to say a special thanks to our producer, TechCrunch's own Christopher Gates, our executive producer, Henry Pickerbet. Thank you to Katie Roof. Thank you to Matthew Lindley. And thank you to you for leaving us that five star iTunes review. That's Equity. We'll see you all next Friday.